More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. I'm Kelly. If you're new here, I'm really happy to have you. And if you're an old friend, I'm really happy to have you as well. I'm excited as always to be able to spend some time with you every single week and just share. You know, someone posted in the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group this week that they had just found this podcast and were hooked on it. And another member of our group welcomed her and said, you know, it sucks that we have to meet this way, but let's make the most of it. And I kind of feel that way about the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group and uh, the people who listen to this podcast in general. It's not great that the common bond that we all share is sexual abuse, but what is great is that since we don't get a choice in what happens to us, at least we have a place where we can lean on each other. And I really appreciate everybody who takes the time to post in the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And I know I talk about it every week, but it's because I think it's a really great resource if you have any questions that you want to ask, you want to get some feedback on things that are going on in your own story, or if you just want to see what everybody else is posting and maybe get some encouragement sometimes on your journey as you're trying to heal, as you're trying to move forward, as you're trying to become a thriver. And speaking of the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group, I did my very first Facebook Live video and posted it in the Survivor Sanctuary group. Um, I've never even gone live on my own Facebook page, but I just thought, you know what? I, I want to try this out. And it was almost like doing the podcast live. It was kind of fun. Um, just a very short video, but you can see that if you are a member of Survivor Sanctuary. So just search Survivor Sanctuary on the Facebook app. I was literally about to just say on the Facebook. Um, I sound like I'm 582 years old. On Facebook, you can search Survivor Sanctuary and request to join. It is a private group because I want everybody to feel safe and to feel like they can just talk about the things they need to talk about and not worry about, you know, some people that may be trolling posts. We don't allow that in the Facebook group. So you'll be safe there. Just request to join and I will add you and you'll be a part of the family. Well, we are getting into episode 16 today, and it's all about naming abusers by name. If you had asked me five years ago if I thought that child molesters should be named outright and their names should be shared in a church, I probably would have said absolutely not. I was probably more of the mindset that everybody can be forgiven, and if someone says they're sorry, then all consequences are gone, and we just need to embrace them and love them. And I'm not mocking grace and love and repentance and forgiveness. Those are all really great things. But what I am a little bit eh, cynical about 
is how quick we are to believe that someone is repentant just because they've said some words that sound really nice once they get caught for doing what they're doing. Now, last week's episode dealt a little bit more with this. It dealt with child molesters who say they're sorry and kind of how to deconstruct whether they are or not. And I want to give a shout out to Jimmy Hinton right now. I think we just had the same podcast idea last week um, because on his and his mom's Speaking Out on Sex Abuse podcast, they talked about what the difference is between true repentance and a wolf who kind of just wants to get away with the things that he's done. They were a lot more like technical about it and in-depth and have a really great list of things that you can look for. And I mean, some of it is similar to what you heard here on Survivor Sanctuary last week, but there is some other information that is really amazing. And I love that podcast. And if you don't listen to the Speaking Out on Sex Abuse podcast with Jimmy and Clara Hinton, I want to encourage you to listen. It's a really great podcast full of really great resources. And it's always nice to have advocates who you just feel like have your back in the survivor community. So in the several interviews that I've done here on Survivor Sanctuary so far, and in interacting with survivors in general, I've noticed a common theme that comes up. And I probably say this at least once an episode because there just are a lot of commonalities when it comes to surviving sexual abuse. Everyone's story is different in the details, but there are a lot of similarities because surviving sexual abuse when it comes right down to it in general is something that we can all relate to. But uh, especially in Katie Trout's interview a couple of weeks ago here on the podcast, I think it was episodes 13 and 14, she mentioned that when she came forward about her abuse, and Katie Trout is a survivor of sexual abuse that we had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and she said that she was disappointed in her church, and one of the things that she said was that the church did not name the abuser to the congregation. I've heard this from some other listeners to this podcast and other survivors and advocates when they share their story who say the same thing, that they come forward about their abuser, they have the courage to step forward and tell church leadership or tell the organization's leadership that they've been abused, which is really not an easy thing to do emotionally and even physically, like it wears you down, but people will work up the courage. They know they need to come forward and they tell the church, they tell the leaders, they tell someone in charge. And while the situation is quote unquote handled, usually the abuser is not named. This has happened multiple times in my life. One, when I came forward about being abused as a child and I told the church leadership what had happened to me, They did have my abuser stand before the church and say that he had to resign from being a deacon because he had sinned in his past. And they just had him repent in front of everyone to a blanket sin. And it was upsetting to me because I felt like it was really, really important that people know what he had done. In fact, it was something that I was very adamant about. And thankfully, the church kind of took care of that accidentally because they were really upset that this deacon had had to resign. Most of them were his family members and they were saying, hey, why does he have to resign? It couldn't be that bad. You know, we still want him to be a deacon. And so the church felt like it was necessary because of all that pushback that they were getting to go ahead and tell the congregation exactly what he had done. 
Another time that I've run into this situation where a church doesn't want to name an abuser is in the story that I told you about several episodes back about the church that I attended up until very recently. Now, one of their youth leaders who was not a paid staff member but worked very, very closely with youth for many years was arrested for sexually assaulting a 15-year-old. And the church was extremely hush-hush about the name of the perpetrator, especially when addressing the congregation. When the pastor addressed the congregation, he didn't say a name. He said someone from our church was arrested. He didn't give a name, and he didn't give the nature of the arrest. And I was frustrated so much and kind of taken back to what had happened in my own story several years before when the church kind of just wanted to deal with it where only leadership knew what he had done and he could just stand in front of the church and confess to sin and not really have to own everything that had happened. So you kind of get guilted by people in the church who believe that you're being unforgiving you're being bitter, you're being resentful, and perhaps you're being vengeful. And I probably have been accused of all of those things. And it used to bother me a lot more than it does now. It still bothers me, but I'm at a point where I know why I spoke out, I know why I continue to speak out, and I feel that God knows my heart. And so that has to be enough for me because not everybody's going to understand. But for me, the most important aspect of coming forward was so that other people would be protected. And I felt like not mentioning a name and not mentioning the nature of the crime that had been committed or the sin, if you want to call it a sin, not mentioning that did nothing to help kids to be protected. And I find that, again, I was frustrated when the pastor of my former church did the same thing. Now, I've heard all kinds of excuses, and when you hear statements from churches or you hear their reasoning for not sharing, they say that it's to protect victims. But honestly, I have so much trouble buying that. In fact, I just don't. I'll just say it. I don't believe that at all. I don't believe that when churches don't disclose perpetrators' names and they don't disclose to parents of children in that church that this person has done you know, X, Y, Z, and here's what you need to do to protect your kids— They'll say all day long that they're doing it to protect victims, but what I believe is that they're doing it to protect themselves. The church wants as little to do with this situation as possible, and it's not to say that I don't understand why a church would want nothing to do with a situation such as sexual abuse, especially if it involved one of their leaders, but unfortunately, once a church is a part of it, I think that you're just a part of it, and you have a choice whether you're going to respond to the abuse in a good, godly way that ensures that the survivors feel heard and protected and that future potential victims are rescued from what could eventually happen to them if nothing is disclosed and if no one ever comes forward. But I mentioned that we get a lot of pushback as survivors. And when you say that you want somebody to be named and you want their offense to be named as well, There's just this attitude that it is somehow ungodly and that it is somehow fleshly, this desire that you have. So on this episode, I wanted to go over why I think it's important for churches to name abusers. And when I first started sharing my story, I honestly didn't know if I was right or wrong about this deep desire 
for the truth to be exposed. I really didn't. I thought maybe everybody's right and I should just forgive this person, move on, not name names, not say exactly what happened and just try and move forward and let him try and move on with his life. And you hear so many messages from people who basically say that that's what you should do, that that it's a little hard to kind of decipher that for yourself. It was for me anyway. I don't want to speak for everyone. I obviously can't do that. But I know in my own life and in my own story, I worried, like, is it wrong? And I could not shake the feeling that I wanted this abuse to be named. And I didn't understand why I was so adamant about it at first. And then when this situation a couple of years ago, after I had already started advocating, happened in my church and they didn't name the abuser once again and just said, you know, someone in our church was arrested and pray for everyone. That was basically it. I was struck once again with that deep frustration and anxiety that they weren't exposing the truth and saying out loud what had actually happened. And I caught myself again saying, you know, maybe are they right that they don't want to name the abuser? Is it right that they should just keep everything a little more quiet? Is it the right way to go? And I grappled with that question a little bit. And that's just been within the last year. But I've come to a conclusion in my heart and in my mind and based on my experiences and the experiences of other people who have shared with me that it's super important that churches name abusers. And I have a couple of reasons why. And they're the reasons that I finally realized that I was having so much anxiety over the fact that the abusers weren't being named, why I was so insistent that you can't just say this person sinned. You have to say what actually happened. And I didn't even understand it myself for a while, but now I do. And that frustration and that anxiety came from a knowledge of what could happen if churches don't name the abusers. So why do I think it's important for churches to say out loud who did it and what they did? I'm not talking about graphic detail. I'm just saying that, okay, Joe Schmo was arrested for sexually assaulting a teen boy and he has been arraigned and is out on bond. And our church is reeling from this news. We honestly don't know exactly what to do, but we do want you to know that we're here for you in any way we can possibly be here for you. If you need help, come to us. You're always safe to talk to us. So the first reason I think that something like that is really important is one, it helps to deter abusers. Like if a person who is a predator and who's out to molest children or to harm someone, maybe even abusing their spouse or physically abusing their kids, if they know that a church takes abuse very, very seriously and that they're not going to help predators to hide and to be able to slink away without the full reality of what they've done being brought into the light, that's going to deter people who abuse. Now, it's not necessarily going to stop every single instance of abuse outright, but I think it is an extra layer of protection for kids in the church or people in the church who are vulnerable. That's going to deter abusers. Like, I promise you get up from the pulpit and you take a very strong stance about abuse and you handle it in a way that definitely protects everyone, names perpetrators, names actual crimes committed, and offers real help, abusers are going to know, this is not really a safe church for me because they're really, really serious about abuse and they are out to protect 
the vulnerable, and I might need to find a new church to prey on people. I just think that it helps deter abusers. Not going to stop everybody. It's not enough to just do that, but it is an extra layer of protection. So it helps deter abusers if they know that this church outs predators. I'm not going to just be able to stand in front of the church or not even stand in front of the church, maybe just sit in front of the deacon board and say, I have sinned. You know, I'm actually going to be called out for being a predator of children. Number two, churches should name abusers because it gives parents a heads up. And this is what I realized was at the core of my frustration with my original church where I came forward about my abuse and the church this past year that I felt like mishandled the abuse that happened with their one of their youth leaders. That was at the core of it, that if you don't say out loud what happened, how can you give parents a chance to protect their kids? How can you protect kids or give the vulnerable a chance to protect themselves? You need to give people a heads up so that if they have kids, they know, all right, this person who has been in the church for all these years has just been found out to be a predator of children. Maybe I need to have a conversation with my child. Maybe I need to ensure that they're safe from now on when they go to church. Maybe I need to figure out if there's anything that they've been hiding that might be hurting them. It gives parents a heads up and gives them a fighting chance to protect their kids. And that's something that will always frustrate me to no end is when churches use forgiveness and grace to enable predators and to put vulnerable children at risk, because it does. It it definitely puts children at risk more if you don't name a perpetrator than if you do. So number two, it gives people a heads up, especially parents who need to protect their own kids. And the third reason that I think that churches should name abusers is because it gives survivors the courage to come forward about their own abuse. And hands down, this was at the core of everything I did in order to come forward about my abuser. When I thought that I was his only victim, I never thought in any way, shape, or form that I would ever tell anyone what he had done. Maybe those closest to me, but never his church, never his family, never other missionaries. When I thought it was just me, that was my stance. Once I found out, based on my knowledge of how child molesters operate, and I realized that this guy had definitely had a pattern of doing this, that it probably wasn't just me, something rose up inside me that just would not leave me alone. And it was the thought that this guy had other victims and that they were sitting in silence and suffering and not understanding and struggling through life the way that I had. And I wanted to protect those people. I wanted to give them a chance to be able to come forward and say, hey, this happened to me and I need help. I don't know exactly why this was the most important thing to me when I came forward, but it was. I wanted other survivors to have the chance to say, me too. This happened to me and I need help. I also really wanted to protect little children that this man still had access to. They were nameless and they were faceless little kids, but Those nameless, faceless kids drove me to do what I did. They drove me to take that step that didn't feel so great to say out loud what had been done to me and who had done it 
And to make myself vulnerable in that way, it was the thing that drove me. Giving survivors a chance to come forward about their own abuse, to know it's okay, like it's okay for you to speak up about this. You don't have to sit and hide anymore. You don't have to keep this to yourself. You don't have to bury it down and struggle with it alone. You can come forward. And also protecting other kids from this ever happening to them. In hearing stories of other survivors, I kind of get this feeling that we all have this feeling that we have a duty to warn. Like we feel that as survivors of sexual abuse, we know it's important that I warn others so that this doesn't happen to them. We understand the urgency of the situation. And when I finally realized that my perpetrator had probably had more victims I just felt that strong duty to warn, like it is my job to make sure that nobody else has to experience what I experienced. It was so, so, so important to me. And to the point where when the people I was telling were trying to kind of like counsel me or give me Bible verses or tell me that I should go talk to a pastor or my dad or whoever, like I would get really frustrated because The whole point of coming forward was to protect other people. And I felt like if you don't name the abuser and you don't name what he did, you're not protecting future victims and you're not giving other survivors the courage and the permission to come forward about their own abuse. And that's the way that they're going to find healing. That's the way that they're going to understand that it's okay that they don't have to bottle up this pain anymore, that there are people there who want to help them and who aren't going to shame them or make them feel like they should be quiet. So number three, it gives survivors the courage to come forward about their own abuse. And number four, churches should name abusers because it reinforces the decision of survivors who come forward about abuse. It lets us know we did the right thing. And maybe you think that's a given, but if you've ever had to come forward about abuse that was done to you, especially if it was by someone in the church and someone that's beloved by the church, or maybe it's in your family, someone beloved by your family, you understand all those questions in your mind. Am I doing the right thing by coming forward? Is this what I should do? Now you eventually, hopefully get to the place where you know in your heart of hearts, you did the right thing. But we constantly have people telling us, people in the church, people outside of the church, people who are friends with the perpetrator, people who we thought were our friends, constantly telling us, you need to let go of this, you know, just let this person move on with their life, stop trying to make people say their name or telling people that they are a child abuser, you know, you just need to let this go and forgive. Those are the messages that we're getting. And so even if we feel in our heart of hearts that we did the right thing by coming forward, when we get that kind of pushback, you need a little bit of reinforcement. You need for people to say, listen, you did the right thing coming forward. It took a lot of courage to do that. And because you've spoken up, there very well might be some kids who are not going to experience abuse because you were willing to say something. Or you might give someone else the courage to come forward with their story. So it reinforces the decision of survivors who came forward about abuse to let them know that they did the right thing. One of the most important things I think in recovering from sexual abuse or healing, however you want to put it, thriving, you know, getting through whatever your terminology that you like to use, one of the most important things is feeling safe to come forward. 
finally being able to say out loud, whether it's to a friend, a parent, a counselor, exactly what it is that happened to you, and to admit the truth out loud. You admit it to yourself as much as you admit it to other people, and it's very healing. It's something that survivors need, and it's so important. And I think that in a lot of churches, we have leaders freaking out, hoping against hope that nobody else comes forward. And I will say from personal experience that this has actually happened. So I met with one of the board members of the church that I was just a part of um, over the last several years when this whole situation happened and I wanted to offer some resources to help any potential victims in the church and just to help the church. I I know a lot of people who work in uh, sexual abuse advocacy, especially in the church. And I thought, you know what, I've got some resources I could just share. And so one of the board members met with me and she asked me what I thought we should do for the youth group. Um, And I mentioned, you know, maybe having some counselors there when they go back to youth group for the first time since one of their youth leaders was arrested, maybe having some counselors there who can kind of walk them through this trauma, because it is traumatic when you find something like this out about a person that you thought was your spiritual leader. But one of the things that this board member said to me over and over again, and I mean over and over again, we do not want to ask people to disclose abuse to us. We don't want to do it. We're not equipped to handle it. We don't want disclosures. We don't want to tell people that. And this person kept saying that to me over and over again. We'll have counselors there, but we want the counselors to tell them to disclose to another organization. Uh, uh, There was a nonprofit organization that was mentioned several times. Like if anyone wants to disclose, they should go to this nonprofit organization to disclose. But my thought was why in the heck would any survivor choose to go to strangers at some nonprofit organization to say, hey, I was sexually abused by my youth leader or sexually abused by anyone instead of telling people in the church that they know and that they feel safe and comfortable with. Now, I understand, and I'm not saying at all that I thought that these kids should disclose to the church and the church should counsel them through it. Not at all. I 100% believe that the church is not equipped to help people heal from the trauma of sexual abuse as far as counseling and trauma therapy and things like that. You know, I don't think that the church is equipped for that and I would never recommend that. But what the church is equipped to do is handle an admission of having been abused. Yes, the church will have to report it, but I thought that it was a travesty that this church leadership was so adamant that they did not want kids disclosing to them. And when you know that Most people feel too ashamed to come forward. Most people are afraid to tell anyone, especially when they're still teens, especially when they're still kids. It's scary for them. And what they need at that time in that moment is to have church leadership tell them, if anything has happened to you that you've been holding inside, that you've been afraid to tell, we want you to know that we are safe people for you to tell. I'm not saying to counsel children through trauma. I'm not saying that a Sunday school teacher should use his or her expertise to help someone heal from sexual abuse. Stay in your own lane. I get that. But when it comes to disclosures of abuse, it's completely ridiculous in my mind to expect a child or a teenager or a young adult, even an adult in some cases, to only go to the proper authorities who are equipped to deal with sexual abuse 
in order to disclose that they've been abused. If we have to wait for that, there are going to be even fewer people reporting. What child or teenager is going to go to some counseling center to disclose that they were abused instead of going to a friend, a family member, a pastor, a youth pastor, a grandparent? What small child is going to know that they can go to the police and report what's happened to them? It's just a ridiculous concept, and it takes me back to the belief that this is 100% a self-protective move. You can say, oh, we're not equipped to counsel anyone who's been sexually abused. We don't want anybody disclosing to us. But I think one of the reasons or the main reason that a church doesn't want anyone disclosing to them is that it is going to once again be a threat to the church's reputation. Because if you're a mandatory reporter and a child discloses to you they were abused, you do have to contact the authorities and tell them. And you are going to be on record as a mandatory reporter, and the laws are different in every state, but we're all mandated to report child sexual abuse. You don't have to do it by name, but you're mandated to report it if a child discloses to you and you're over 18 years old. It's a crime that you are supposed to alert the authorities to. But once someone discloses to a church, their name is in the file, they might be back in the news, They might have another person on their hands who was abused by a member of their church. Maybe it wasn't, but maybe it was. And it just screams scandal. And when a church is reeling from the kind of news that my church was reeling from this past year, the last thing they want is the threat of another scandal. But I think that they're looking at it the wrong way, looking at it from the lens of an institutional protector rather than a protector of vulnerable people. I can tell you that I've had to report abuse before. It is not something that I ever wanted to do in my entire life. It is not something I relish doing, and I wanted there to be any other recourse, any other course of action, but I knew. I know that someone has been abused, and I know that I have to report it. Come what may, regardless of what the consequence may be to me, it has to happen. And I can also say that I've dealt with consequences of having reported abuse. You can lose friendships, you can lose family members, you can lose the respect of people who don't know the truth. There are negative consequences to reporting, but guess what? None of them matter when the alternative is leaving children vulnerable to abuse, leaving children in danger, knowing that you could have stopped an abuser and you didn't do it because it was going to be uncomfortable or the consequences for you were going to suck, that's hard to live with. And I'm not saying this to guilt anyone or to make you feel like you've somehow failed if you haven't reported or if you didn't report quickly. That's not the point here. What I am talking about, though, are churches who refuse to name abusers out loud, who refuse to tell parents, hey, This dude who's had access to your kids for all these years, yeah, um, unfortunately, he likes to sexualize kids. And we think it's important that you know that this person who's out on bond has your child's contact information. We think it's important for you to know that this person who went on overnight trips with your kids a dozen and a half times has been arrested for sexually abusing a kid. We need to say their names out loud. 
and we need to warn parents. I mentioned a few minutes ago that survivors feel like we have a duty to warn. And I work in the legal field, so you might hear that in legal speak, this duty to warn. And they're not talking about churches and abuse, but honestly, I believe that church leaders should feel a duty to warn, just like survivors feel it. They should feel that they have a responsibility to name an abuser and name what has happened so that people are equipped to protect against it or people are equipped to come forward if that's what they need to do. But it's survivors that feel this fierce protection for people. It's survivors who are kept up at night knowing that people are vulnerable to this abuser and knowing that there are people who don't know what this person has done. And I hear stories like this, both in the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group and in advocacy in general, you will hear survivors say over and over again, this very thing, this man who abused me has access to all these kids. It's driving me crazy that there's nothing I can do about it. And you have survivors losing sleep, losing peace of mind, losing friends, losing churches, and losing support because they know what it means to leave children vulnerable to a predator. They know personally what it means, and they want so badly to protect other people from that. It is a drive in us as survivors, and I believe it should be a drive for church leaders as well. It may not be a law that's been passed in any state. It may not be on the books, but I believe 100% churches have a duty to warn. If you have a predator in your midst, if you have someone who sexually abused children, you have an obligation to every single person in your congregation to keep them safe. And being quiet and being secretive does not keep people safe. You don't have to name a victim out loud. And whenever I hear people say, oh, we're just keeping this quiet to protect the victims, it's like, you don't have to say a victim's name. You can say that someone was a perpetrator and that they molested a child without naming that child. I just think it's it's baloney, basically, that this has anything to do with protecting victims. It doesn't. It's all about protecting the church, the institution, the reputation that this church enjoys, the peacefulness of not having to deal with a scandal. But when you have one and you have people hurting and suffering or people who are just vulnerable, I say you suck it up and you do the right thing, regardless of the personal consequences. And we don't see that a whole lot. And I just want to see churches who take it seriously the same way that survivors do. So in closing, I'll go back through my little list again of why I believe churches should name abusers. One, it helps deter abusers. Two, it gives parents a heads up so they can protect their kids. Three, it gives other survivors the courage to come forward about their own abuse so that they can find healing. And four, it reinforces the decision of survivors who already came forward about abuse. It lets us know we did the right thing. And number five, it sends a message to everyone, perpetrator or victim or family of victims, whoever they may be, it sends a message to everyone that this church takes abuse very seriously and we will not cover up or hide from the truth. No matter how painful it is, it's going to be brought into the light because that's the only way to protect the vulnerable. As I bring today's podcast to a close, I just want to talk to my fellow survivors for a second. 
Um, those of you, if, if you've never come forward publicly about your abuse, you've never turned somebody in, your story is your own story, and not all of us have exactly the same thing that we deal with. But I know so many survivors, and I've talked to you guys, I've looked you in the face, some of you I've only talked to online, but there are these stories over and over again that we feel this fierce protection for people that could be vulnerable to the person who abused us. And I know it's because we understand the consequences of allowing that abuser to continue to be around children unchecked. We know the consequences because we live them out every single day. And I don't know the answer for every single person, but I do know that when you are fighting to protect other people, even though it might feel like a lonely position sometimes, even though it might feel fruitless, you're doing something amazing. And I'm not gonna name any names right now due to privacy, and honestly, there are quite a few stories, so it would take me a while to name names, but there are some survivors, even in our group, interacting recently, like not sure what to do in order to protect other kids, not sure what to do to help people that are vulnerable to these people that they know are terrible abusers. I know it's hard, and I know it hurts, and I know it's frustrating, and I've been there losing sleep with you. Sometimes I still do, and I don't have some perfect answer that tells you exactly what you should or shouldn't do or what you're obligated to do or what you're free from doing. I honestly don't think as survivors that we're necessarily obligated to do anything, but I know this because I am a survivor and I know survivors. We don't have to be obligated to protect vulnerable people in order to have a passionate drive to do it anyway. We understand what happens when people aren't protected from predators. We live it out every day. And I think that we can be told a million times by a million people that we don't have a responsibility to try and protect anybody else. I've actually even been in therapy and had a therapist that like, why is this so important to you? Just not understanding. Why is it so important to you that you keep worrying about the fact that this man is around children. Why is this so important? Even therapists sometimes don't understand it. Maybe your friends and family don't understand it, but I'll tell you that your fellow survivors understand it. And I'm just, we're here with you. That's, that's all that I can say. That's all that I can offer. I don't have any great advice to give you about how to deal with this deep-seated belief that we have a duty to warn. I don't know how to deal with it except to say, I believe that our desire to protect the vulnerable is one of God's attributes. We were created in his image and we have his attributes and that's one of them to protect people who can't protect themselves. So if that's what you're doing and people aren't listening to you, if that's what you're doing and you're getting pushback, if that's what you're doing and you feel frustrated that you're not making any headway, I want to encourage you what you're doing matters. I know I could tell you it doesn't matter and you still wouldn't stop because you know in your heart of hearts that it does. Because if you can keep one person from being abused, then all the crap you have to deal with to get to that point is worth it. It just is. So we're here for you, your fellow survivors. I know there are so many people who are advocates for the abused and you care as well. And I just want to encourage you to keep going. Not under the weight of some obligation to save the whole world, but to keep fighting because it empowers you, it empowers other people, and it protects. And love always protects. Before I go, I want to ask you once again to join the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. 
I'd love to chat with you there. May go live sometime again. It was actually kind of fun. Um, I know it was just like a 90 second video of me being a weirdo, but it was kind of interesting and almost feels like we're actually chatting face to face. So we may be doing some more of that kind of thing in the future, maybe having some online meet and greets and things like that. So you definitely want to join the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group to find out more details on stuff like that that's coming up in the future. Well, I hope that you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. If you are listening to this, the day it airs, Thanksgiving is tomorrow and enjoy turkey and stuffing and mashed potatoes and pumpkin pie. Or if you're from the South, sweet potato pie, if you must. And I will catch you back here next week on another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.